Hello, and welcome to Deep North. We're here today in the studio with Iceland Review editor Greta Einarsdóttir on her piece, The Right to Bear Arms, a profile of 2021 Person of the Year, Guðmundur Felix. The Right to Bear Arms. I'm sitting in a hotel lobby, scribbling some last-minute notes in my notebook before the interview. I look up and notice Guðmundur Felix Gretarsson entering, so I raise a hand to let him know I'm here. He waves back and I get up to greet him. He shakes my hand and I introduce myself before he points to a small room where we can chat undisturbed. Nothing about this exchange feels remarkable to me, but Guðmundur Felix has a different perspective. 1998 Guðmundur Felix was working as an electronics engineer. He had two daughters, a four-year-old and another only three months. On January 12, he set out to do some work on a high-voltage transmission line. The line he was supposed to be working on was powered off, but on that fateful day, Felix reached out and touched the line that was very much powered on. Shocked by 11,000 volts, he fell eight meters. He broke his back, fractured his neck, his ribs came loose, and his arms were set on fire. When he woke up, both his arms had been amputated at the shoulder. Drinking and using drugs to numb the pain was the destructive path Felix walked after his accident. All of a sudden I was faced with a life that I didn't want to live, he says. Everything was gone. My relationship ended soon after the accident. Everyone around me was exhausted. I went from being this guy with a good job and this life ahead of him to being a helpless loser overnight. There came a point when I had to have a liver transplant to save my life, but I wasn't eligible because of my addiction. There's no such thing as a short version, Felix says, when asked how he ended up in France two decades later before launching into his tale. I lost my arms in January 1998, but already in September, the team at the Lyon Hospital performed the first successful double-hand transplant. When you lose your arms, you keep an eye out for this kind of news. Dr. Jean-Michel Dupenat was a pioneer in his field, and the operation made headlines all over the world. But Felix didn't speak any French. Later, one such operation was performed in China as well. But I didn't speak any Chinese either, Guðmundur chuckles. So when they perform a similar surgery in the US, a hand transplant, I reached out to the team who performed the surgery. That was in 2001. 2001. A hand transplant is as complicated a process as it gets. The operation itself, where a horde of surgeons carefully stitch together skin, muscles, tendons, veins and nerves, is only the first step. A potent drug cocktail of immunosuppressants is administered so the body doesn't reject the new body parts. And the recovery means that nerves start to regrow from the stitches and into the new limb at a glacial speed, only one millimeter per day. While waiting for the nerves to reach the muscles they should control, there's the risk of atrophy due to inactivity. What Felix was asking the American doctors to do meant waiting for the nerves to regrow the full length of an arm. The likelihood of success was slim. 
I wanted the surgery so bad, Felix tells me. But nobody was doing anything of that scale at the time. Hands, sure, there's such a short distance that the nerves need to grow. But the whole arm? Forget about it. In the two years it would take, there wouldn't be any muscle left in the hands. So the American doctors politely brushed him off. 2007. Six years went by. Felix beat his addiction and had his liver replaced. He went about his life, learning to operate a car using his feet, to scratch his face by rubbing it against something, and drink from a straw. Then, a French culture festival in Reykjavik invited Dr. Jean-Michel Dubenard to give a lecture at the University of Iceland. I saw him on TV. I just started making phone calls all over town to find the guy. I called every hotel in the city until I found him at Hotel Holt, and he agreed to see me. While Dubernard had the same misgivings about Felix's case as the other doctors who had rebuffed him, he didn't say no. When everyone else had said, this is impossible, he said, I don't know if this is possible. But whatever the answer is, I want to be able to give arguments to support it. So in 2007, Felix dove headfirst into gathering his medical files. The next step was to translate everything into French. I found some certified translators, but they wanted to charge me an arm and a leg, so I went to the Ministry of Health. They said this wasn't in their jurisdiction. They didn't help with experimental procedures in other countries. Every door was closed, until an acquaintance reminded me that Vigdis Finnboadottir used to be a French teacher before she became president. So I knocked on her door. Vigdis connected Felix with a French pediatrician living in Iceland who was willing to help. With all the data sent to France, Felix waited for an answer. 2011. Felix is asked to come to France for further research. By that time, Dubernard was no longer the head of the team. He had retired and been replaced by Dr. Lionel Badet. Felix jumped on a plane for his first visit to Lyon, spending a week in a hospital where, he says, they checked everything. The results were promising, and next spring, Felix went for another week to be poked and prodded. By this point, the trips and hospital stays are taking a financial toll. When interviewed about his foot-operated car, the journalist presents a solution. She would start a charity in his name. I decided to run 10k in the Reykjavik Marathon, Felix tells me. About 200 people ran with me to raise funds. It was an amazing experience. While the credit card debt was now paid off, Felix was still waiting for an answer on whether or not the French doctors would perform the operation. In September, I get an answer. We're ready to try this. The doctors weren't promising a miracle cure. They were describing a complicated surgery with a long recovery time and an intense rehabilitation process for a slim chance of success. Much like all the other doctors, they didn't know if the operation would work or if the nerves would grow, or if I would be able to do anything with the hands afterwards. But there was a plan B. There's a muscle called the latissimus dorsi on the sides of your back. When I first lost my arms, I had a stump, and the doctors could use part of that muscle in the place of a bicep, so I could move my elbow. The doctors told Felix that if worst came to worst, and the nerves wouldn't grow, they had the option of repeating that operation on the right, so he could at least bend the elbow, and give him an option of a better prosthetic. Prosthetics need something to attach to, 
As it was, I couldn't really use any, Felix tells me. With that option on the table, to Felix, the gamble was worth it. For the doctors, one event from Felix's medical history helped convince them. An operation of this scale is dangerous, and one huge risk factor is that all transplant patients, be it organ or limb replacements, need to take immunosuppressant medication for the rest of their lives. This drug, well, it's poison really. It keeps your immune system down, making it harder for your body to fight off infections and diseases. But I was already taking them because of my liver transplant. Putting someone on immunosuppressants for life is not something you do lightly when a chance of success is so slim. But now that wasn't an issue. As much as I felt sorry for myself when I was going through that liver transplant, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise. 2012. Around Christmas, Felix get told that in a few months' time he might get put on the transplant list. So he moved to Lyon. The doctors warned me it might be a little premature, but I wanted to find a place to live and get settled. The next autumn, preparations began. They needed to custom build an operation table and braces, prepare the whole team and so on. But then everything grinds to a halt due to bureaucracy. Such a surgery had never been done before, and the French authorities are super strict on regulations and procedures. They needed to rewrite tissue transplant regulations, taking my case into account. Every time they made changes, the institutions have six months to review the data before they approve them. If it's not completely accurate, you need to go through the same process again and wait another six months. In the autumn of 2016, all I's are dotted and T's are crossed, and Felix was put on the transplant list. Now the waiting begins. 2016. I'm waiting for a phone call around the clock, always careful to keep my phone on me. I don't take a vacation or travel too far from Lyon. This is the case year-round, except for six weeks in the summer, when Felix is taken off the transplant list, so his team of doctors can take a vacation. Then he gets a call. At least three times I got the call saying that they'd found the match. But in France, while everyone's an organ donor unless they specify otherwise, the same doesn't apply to limbs. You always need special permission from the loved ones. Even for Felix, that's understandable. The worst day of people's lives isn't the time to wrap their heads around something like an operation that's never been done before. Of course, if you don't get an organ transplant, you die. It's a life-saving operation. You can survive without a limb, but your quality of life isn't the same. And the effect an operation like this can have, there's no way to describe it. It's the difference between being alive and having a life. The first time he got the call, he was elated. I thought it was finally happening. Then I got another phone call telling me, sorry, the family said no. The next time it happened, my hopes were a little more muted. I thought, here we go again. By this point, it had been 23 years since Felix lost his arms, and he had been living in France for eight years. He'd met his wife Sylvia, they'd gotten married and gotten some dogs and moved into a small apartment in a renovated 18th century mansion on the outskirts of Lyon. The thing about waiting is that time passes whether you're waiting for something or not. France is a great place to live, and waiting is a lot easier that way, even if it's always at the back of your mind. 2021 At 9pm on a January night, Felix gets the long-awaited call again, telling him the hospital would know more the next morning. 
and on the morning of January 12, 23 years to the day of my accident, I get the call telling me to get to the hospital and get ready. It was happening. Then, on the morning of January 13, a team of 50 people screwed on my new arms. It was a 15-hour operation, and just like he had been promised and prepared for, that was only the start of it. I've gained so much already and feel thankful every day, but my God, it's been hard. When I got my liver transplant, I was very sick, but as soon as I got the transplant, I felt so much better. This time, the surgery was just the beginning. The pain is greater than he had imagined. The first seven months were almost unbearable. The doctors connected nerves and veins, muscles, tendons and skin, and this is all hanging from your sutures. Then when the nerves start to grow, they're inside some sheaths, and that hurts like a... because as they grow, they rub up against the walls. The doctors cautiously estimated that the nerves could take up to two years to regrow. In nine months, however, Felix could feel his hands. We're seeing much better results than people were even hoping for. They were keeping their expectations low, of course, making sure it didn't have sky-high hopes, but the success is incredible. Felix is careful not to take the credit for everything on his journey, praising and thanking all the people who helped him and cared for him along the way. I owe them so much, he says. This isn't something you do on your own. His mother moved to France with him to take care of him. His wife and his father have shown immense support. I'm so lucky in my friends and family. No matter how crazy my dreams were, they were with me all the way. Now that I can do more, my mom doesn't need to take care of me as much. My father died this January, and they lived apart for eight years because of this. But before he passed away, he saw me get my arms. Felix also shares his success now with others. I've been receiving messages from all over the world, from every continent. From people who have lost limbs, or have loved ones who've lost limbs. All of a sudden, there's hope. And that's incredible to me, because I know what hope can do. All I had was one tiny note from a doctor who didn't say no, and that kept me going for years. 2022 So how have new arms changed Felix's life? What you don't realize, he tells me, is that when you lose your hands, you don't touch anything and no one touches you. It's like you're living in a bubble. Parent to an infant and a toddler at the time of his accident, hugging his children is what he missed the most. All of a sudden, all that was gone. You just stand there and can't do anything. And being able to touch things, hug my children and grandchildren again, this is just... Felix trails off. Then there's his independence in everyday life. I can take care of my own hygiene, brush my teeth, and go to the bathroom on my own. I can dress and undress myself, take a drink from a glass without a straw, I can eat with a fork or a spoon... When you've had to rely on other people for every little thing for years, these small things aren't so small. Finally, it's a matter of self-image. I look like a person again. I can move my hands when I talk. I can scratch if I feel an itch. I can wear a watch. Felix now enjoys using a smartphone without having to operate it with the tip of his nose or his tongue, making it very difficult to see the screen. I can use things that are a matter of course and normal to most people, that up until a few months ago, I wasn't sure I would ever be able to do again. 
now. While he's had remarkable success, there's still a long way to go. There are so many muscles in a hand that we never give much thought. Bending a finger takes one set of muscles, but straightening it again means using a whole another set. At this point, I can't straighten my fingers unless I push on the other side to support the muscle in the wrist. Every week, Felix discovers new things he can do. I help my dogs. That's the most recent thing. I can clean the house. I put on a washcloth and pick up a brush and clean the house like a whirlwind. I tried drinking from a glass for the first time at the airport on my way here. When you haven't been able to do it for years, it's very different. Most people don't think about scratching when they have an itch. You don't know how many times you've scratched your face today. But not being able to do it and then being able to do it again, there's nothing like it. My mind is stuck on all the waiting. I ask Felix what he would have done if he had known how long the whole process could take. He answers without hesitation. Just what I did when the accident happened. Dive head first into addiction. We all learn as we grow older, but I had to learn a lot faster. Either I stopped feeling sorry for myself and shoulder some responsibility, or I was staring into the bottom of a coffin. When Felix was at the point when he needed a new liver, he'd been, in his own words, wallowing in self-pity for about three years. I wasn't really suffering from the results of the accident anymore. I was suffering because I didn't want to come to terms to what had happened to me. All my misery was self-made. When I realized that, I also realized that I could change it. I could do plenty of things, but I was laser-focused on the things I couldn't do. Life is easier this way. You see so much clearer. I didn't want to get a liver transplant, but if I hadn't, I wouldn't have arms. As I say goodbye to Felix and walk out into the sunlight, I lift my hand to block the glare, then catch myself absent-mindedly scratching my nose as I walk down the street. Well, thank you, Greta. So it's maybe rather obvious. It's a rather remarkable story. Um, but why this piece right now, and what kind of drew you to uh, Guðmundur Felix's story? Well, obviously, Guðmundur's uh, tale is uh, pretty remarkable, but the thing about Felix, as he's usually known, is that he, uh, his attitude through all of this, well, not the first three years after his accident, but uh, his attitude, first of all, believing that this could be done and then following through and uh, taking it all in his stride uh, as he waits for several years for to have this surgery, um, to me, that's the fascinating part. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that his attitude towards some of this is one of the most remarkable things. And, you know, something that I was kind of thinking about uh, during your reading of the piece um, is just his openness uh, to kind of talk about um, the real problems that uh, came with his condition. And I think that sometimes when we hear a tragedy like this, uh, we kind of mythologize it a bit and kind of turn the people into martyrs and you know when we turn somebody into martyr we also kind of maybe like to think of them as really idealized and kind of perfect in a lot of ways so like it's interesting to me like how just open he is I guess about um 
you know, just like the real negative impact that this had on his life and just the problems with addiction that he struggled with afterwards. You know, I mean, um, yeah, like maybe you can just kind of talk a little bit more about um, his perspective and his kind of attitude towards this. Right. Uh, Felix has been really open about his struggle with addiction and his struggle with coming to terms with his loss after he lost his limbs, which, I mean, it only makes sense, right? Um, As I mentioned in the article, he told me he, it came to a point where he was uh, faced with, you know, losing his life or finding a different way to think about things. And Again, he mentioned um, we all need to learn and grow and mature in our own lives. He just had to do it a lot faster because of things that happened to him. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, there's maybe like a trap when something so like awful happens to you and you kind of think, you know, well, like this wasn't really my fault, so I can kind of just uh, fall back and kind of... uh, feel bad about it. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it was really just kind of striking to me, like how he kind of talks about that this was his responsibility, uh, that he had a choice. I mean, I think that a lot of us, like if something as terrible as this would happen to us, you know, might not uh, totally be as positive uh, about it. Well, according to him, accepting the fact that he didn't have a choice uh, was exactly what got him on that path. Yeah. So he uh, he basically said, this happened to me. That's nothing I can't control. What I can control is what I do now. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> I think that something that's really interesting is, yeah, when we think about a catastrophe like this, it's easy to kind of think about maybe like the big moments, like like the moment when he lost his arms, like the moment when he gets them back. Um, but like in between these really dramatic moments is just a lot of daily life and time Mm -hmm. uh, and waiting. And, you know, I mean, there's, yeah, this kind of uh, image of like him, like driving his car without his arms and like, like these kind of like modifications to his daily life and stuff. I mean, like, can you talk a little bit more about just what daily life was like for Felix um, before the surgery, um, you know, I mean, like what, uh, kind of just kind of technological aids, like did he kind of use to get through the day and, you know, just just some of these things. Well, like you mentioned, when you lose your hand, you touch nothing and no no one touches you. Um, and he had 23 years to get used to it. Um, he did have for a while, he did have, uh, some prosthetics, but, uh, and he had several surgeries over the years. Um, but for the most part of his time, he just had to learn to use what he had. So he had a car that he could operate with his feet and legs. He, uh, you know, when he had first had a smartphone, he could operate it with the tip of his nose, although it was difficult. But the thing that's fascinating to me is that after 23 years of uh, having to figure stuff out, having to get help with every minor task and, and detail in your life, not being able to scratch your nose is uh, how do you uh, relearn that yep. again? Yep. How do you um, figure out what you need to do when you haven't had to do it for, for so long? Yep. 
Yeah, and uh, I mean, something that I was also thinking about from before the accident, um, you know, I mean, in my mind, uh, when you kind of hear about these catastrophes um, and then somebody's miraculous recovery, um, I have this kind of children storybook version of the events in my head where something terrible like this happens and then you just kind of get put on a list and then... uh, Somebody takes over and you just get made better. Uh, but I think the really uh, interesting thing here is, I mean, just all of the real work that he had to kind of put in to finding the right kind of facilities and like getting in contact with these doctors. And this is also in a kind of previous uh, information environment, kind of before uh, like all this stuff was online and just kind of finding out about this stuff through TV and, you know, just kind of being your own advocate and researcher and lawyer and doctor and just kind of doing all this work for yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's what he spent the first uh, 12 years after his accident on doing, basically. He, um, like you mentioned, a couple of months after uh, he had his accident, he saw on the news that someone had tried a hand transplant, done a successful hand transplant. And of course, when you have lost a limb, that's something you keep an eye out for and something you notice and something that you think about. But uh, he, as he mentioned, he doesn't speak French, but didn't at the time. He didn't speak Chinese, where they were also uh, working on these procedures. So, uh, and he was getting his news from, you know, print newspapers and, and from tv he didn't have he couldn't just google arm transplant doctor and and (laughs) check out the reviews (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and then there's the system in iceland as well um with experimental procedures like this uh in other countries it wouldn't really make sense for the government to have a uh, a system to uh, support that um so he had to knock on all the doors and break down some of them in the process, yeah, sure. just just when he would wanted to get his medical files to France, he had to f- go to the archives of the hospital, find the print versions because they weren't um, digitized yet, and then get them translated. Yeah, it's remarkable, um, and you know maybe can also briefly talk a little bit about um, you know so after the surgery. You know, there's kind of just all of these little everyday moments of rediscovery, I guess we could say. Um, you know, and just, yeah, this kind of like relearning life. Like like, there, like there's this little uh, bit uh, where he talks about, you know, kind of being alive without having a life or something to that effect. You know, I mean, what is it like to rediscover yeah, a life. The difference between uh, being alive and having a life. Yeah, um, yeah again, you th- start to think about ev- every little moment. First of all, after the loss, the first moment you realize you can't hold your daughter, or the first moment you realize you can't brush your teeth. And then 23 years later, when you've gotten used to, you've built a life where you can get by without doing these things. And then just that spark, that idea that, oh, maybe... Maybe it's been long enough, maybe I have enough strength in my hands that I can pick up a glass and have a sip. Um, I wonder if I can, you know, clean the sink 
and no. then just trying it, figuring out that you can. And also, like, having to think about all the, you know, how the motor skills of the hand, how every nerve is connected to every muscle, and and some muscles growing faster than others, some nerves growing faster than others, some mus- muscles working better than others. And navigating that, um, he is not done with his rehabilitation process. Um, he is taking the first years after his surgery to put all his energy into the rehabilitation process. He um, goes to the hospital for several hours a day, five days per week, and works on his dexterity, works on his strength, works on uh, refiguring out his life. Yeah, I'm very aware that this must be, I mean, not just difficult to talk about in a kind of, I don't know, intellectual way, but I mean, literally impossible to really properly describe. But I mean, how did he kind of get through daily life for months just being in intense pain? Because, you know, when we think about pain, it's ideally something that's passing and it's not just our kind of daily condition. Um, But this process of regrowing the nerves, I mean, this is a years-long process. And, I mean, it sounds excruciating. Has he kind of talked about just how he's dealt with this? Um, Yes, and that's sort of the thing that, that's my main takeaway after my conversation with Felix, is exactly that, exactly that I have been lucky enough never to have experienced that and that the thought that comes with having lost that and having regained it the appreciation uh, for the lack of pain when you have experienced uh, a whole lot of pain and the appreciation for you know scratching an itch the appreciation for being able to do all these things without having to think about them um and yeah, that's part of his philosophy as well. Just taking it all in a stride, just accepting the things that he can't change, and uh, that old mantra. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think with a story like this, it's really easy to, you know, center on the individual. Uh, I mean, clearly, it's remarkable, um, and he's extremely strong throughout all of this. Um, but, you know, I mean, clearly this is also a very much a kind of team or community effort, and he's received a lot of help from his family and his wife, his, his mother in particular. Um, you know, where, where are they kind of now, like in the, in the recovery process, do you know? Like, uh, Felix is, has been very vocal about all the... Uh, help he said about the support his family is giving him, his friends, uh, his wife, and not just his own personal support team, but also just the dozens of healthcare workers involved in not just the operation, which took 15 hours and required specially built operation tables and so on, but uh, also the healthcare workers who's, who are taking care of his rehabilitation and, and constantly working with him to... Um, regain his, his mobility in his hands. Um, yeah, it takes so much more than a village. <laughs> yep. 
So uh, this is clearly not the end of Felix's story. Um, he's traveling around, kind of talking about uh, like this whole process. Um, what can you kind of tell us about the, the, the future of his story? Yeah, Felix is still in uh, his uh, rehabilitation process. He is still working on gaining new skills and, and uh, figuring out what he can do with his new hands and learning to or continuing to enjoy his life, I should say. Um, like you said, he's traveling around the world as a motivational speaker. But uh, I believe they're also working on a documentary on his um, incredible story. Excellent. Well, thank you, Greta. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.